Hello and welcome to CigarCast, your weekly one-stop shop for all things cigar-related, including industry news, reviews, and everything in between. We're recording live from Mission Cigar and Social here in Spring Hill, Tennessee. I'm one of your hosts, Trey Devin. I'm joined as I am every week by Mr. Shane Reeves. I thought you were going to get... You stopped right in the middle of your intro and looked at your watch. I thought you was about to give the time and weather. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you were working toward. I didn't know if... I thought, wow, we're doing something new tonight. (laughs) It's currently 6.09 p.m. and colder than a witch's tit. (laughs) Yeah. I just was wondering what you had going on there. No, I... We were so close to the beginning of the show that I wasn't through my intro yet that depending on what notification was coming through my watch, if I had needed to stop it, I could. Okay. But well, no, was, it, that was just my watch telling me that I stood up enough today. Yay. You know, and, and sometime we need to talk about the watch thing. Blessing and a curse. Yeah, because I kind of like mine, but I kind of hate that when mine goes off, I'm immediately spurred to look at it. Yeah. Because if I'm having a meeting with somebody and, I, and I'm deep in it and, it just, and I glance at it, they're like, oh, yeah, so he's... Well, see, here's what's so funny about the Apple Watch or just the smartwatch trend in general is... It got looking at your watch while in a conversation with somebody has always been a somewhat rude gesture. And then it became looking at your phone while in a conversation with somebody became a rude gesture. So what did we all do? We all got watches so that we don't have to look at our phones during the conversations, but now we've just gone back to the eighteen twenties. Well, and now I try to do the slick thing. I try to it'll go off and and then glance. half the time it doesn't light up, so now you're just yeah. like making a slightly rude gesture over yeah. in the corner trying. <laughs> but I, but I, you try that, you try to camouflage it. But anyway, let's talk about our guest first, and then we got to light some cigars. So our guest tonight is Tom Loshivo. Is that how you actually pronounce your last name? It's actually uh, Loschiavo. All right. But my parents, for some reason, over the the time where my great great parents came over on the boat. They changed it over okay. time. So, Los Chiavo, but people, my dad says Los Chivo. So, that's, I've gone with that my whole life. So, Tom's here tonight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's right. So, it's funny. Tom works here at the shop. Yeah. And when I met Tom, I didn't know that we already had a friend in common. A friend that I used to go to church with and went to community group with. And one night, I seen a motorcycle club come in here. And I said, oh, that's the, he was in that club. And Tom said, yeah, he and I actually started it together. Well, he had told me stories about starting this club and what all went through it, and it just blew my mind. I said, okay, we got to get Tom on the podcast because I want Tom to tell all about what it took to set up a motorcycle club. And we're going to talk about some cigar stuff first. In the second half, I want to kind of get into that. Yeah. I'm well. really looking forward to this because this is a yeah. uh, this is a, a part of the world that I have no knowledge over. Yeah. It'll be fun. It'll be a lot of fun. So we're going to smoke. Ironically enough, all of us are smoking the New World Dorado tonight. Which is just funny because none of us knew that going into the humidor. <laughs> no, but I guess I knew that we had talked about it last week. And I wanted to get Tom a cigar to thank him for being on the podcast. And I said, well, I'll get him the same one I'm going to smoke, the New World yeah. Dorado. And then you came roaming out of the humidor of a New World Dorado in your hand. Well, I, I grabbed one for the ride home after the show last week. And that was my fourth cigar of the day. So as as much as I enjoyed it, I didn't really get much. I, I wasn't able to taste much out of it. So today it's only my second cigar of the day, so we should be good. Nice. That's my first, so thank so you very much. It's an all-Nicaraguan blend. It has a Habano sun-grown Nicaraguan wrapper, and it has um, it's all-grown from A.J. Fernandez Dorado Farm. So it's all grown from the same farm. And that's interesting because we talked about that. I think it seems like last week we talked about the benefits of all the tobacco being from the same farm. Yeah, and and how it's not really... It's common in so many artisanal products to have something from the same region, the same farm, whatever, you know, Grapes and wine are famous for this. To a lesser extent, some of some cheeses and things like that from certain regions of the world. And then, but with cigars, it, it almost seems to go the opposite direction, where the the pedigree is in how many different types of tobacco from different regions, from different farms you can get. And so, the only other example of this I can think of, and I know there are more, but is the Opus X. 
And that became kind of its party piece early on was that there was a one specific field on their farm that all of the Opus tobacco and then the Lost City is from a specific corner of that specific plot of that, that field. So to my knowledge, I, I know there's got to be others that do it, but it's just a rare thing in the cigar industry. Well, it's kind of like Elmer T. Lee. It's, you know, the bourbon Elmer T. Lee's only aged in a certain corner of the warehouse that faces a certain direction at a certain time, you know. And thing is, and you know, by the way, can I make a community service announcement? I know we're in the fancy whiskey time of the year. Yes. But it's too much pressure on me who doesn't drink when you drag out the Pappy or the Elmer or the you know, barrel-aged, oak-refined, triple-distilled. You know, when you bring out this bottle of whiskey that costs as much as the truck I drove here in and offer me a shot, I have no idea what to say. It, it's funny. I was listening to a podcast or a radio show that I listened to last weekend, and they were in Louisville, and so their guest was a, a master distiller from Buffalo Trace, I think. And he was kind of talking about the unwritten rules of really exclusive special bourbon. And it was a lot like the way we talk about cigars in that basically if you don't like the person, you don't have to bring the bottle out or something to the effect of like, it, it's okay to keep the special stuff squirreled away. People don't have to know you have it. If you do choose to bring it out, number one, the person you're sharing it with is expected to hear the story because we all know those people that they get the super exclusive and they have to tell us about the 33 different liquor stores they went to and the 14 different lotteries that they joined and all but apparently so you have to you have to hear the story and you can't have anywhere to be and it's it's kind of like we talk about a cigar as a unit of time apparently so among that group of folks who collect and, and seek out these super exclusive, there is a certain uh, pantomime for the whole thing, which I found interesting. Yeah, I think it's the loudest voice in the room. It's, it's kind of like what's pushed out the marketing. So I remember when I bought Blends years ago, and it was not even a... Blends was not even a thing. The bourbon... And then you saw it on John Wick, the movie. And then people were like, oh, Blanton's is the thing. We got to get, you know. And so you see those trends, and it's, it's all what people push out there and what they talk about. And that becomes popular. Yeah. And so then the price is sky high, and then you can't find it anywhere. And then people are like, I have a bottle of this because we saw it on this. And then everyone's talking about it. That's what, that's what really pushes it, um, in my opinion. Well, and it's all, you know, I had a very awkward cigar situation this week. So we're all sitting around here Friday night conversing. And one of the guys in here is a big Davidoff fan. Now, if you've listened to the podcast more than once in your life, you probably know I'm not a Davidoff fan. Neither one of us are. Yeah, it's it's just a one-note chord. It's just a plain cigar and... He wanted, you know, and much like we talked about last week, you know, well, you haven't had the right one. And so he went out of his way, and I thank him for it. He went to the other place where they sell Davidoff. He bought the $25 late hour, and he brought it to me and handed it to me, and I said, hey, I'm going to give it every chance in the world. I'm going to fire it up during the Tennessee game when I'm at my maximum relaxation. Because at the time, we thought Tennessee was going to destroy South Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> we, we didn't realize yeah. that. But I, I would have definitely smoked a different cigar. <laughs> but it was just a bad cigar. Yeah. Yeah. And you feel bad because this guy went to a lot of effort to put this cigar in my hand. But at the same, at the same time, if you were ever going to enjoy a Davidoff, that, that was it. That was, that was the time. Yeah. My question to you is what you told him when he asked you how you liked it. I said, it's a decent cigar, but it's not for me. Okay. That I appreciated him getting it for me, and I'm glad that he enjoys it, but it's just not my palate. Yeah. Yeah. Because it started out spicy, 
And then it went flat in the middle and was just boring for most of, you know, Mm -hmm. the game. And then at the end, it spiced up just enough to remind you of what it was when it started. What it could have been the whole time. Yeah. 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 It just, um, it's not a, it's not my stick. But it is always awkward when someone does that. It's like when someone offers you a, you know, a pour of a whiskey. So when you're working here. Yeah. I was just going to say that. Like when, when people come in here and they're like. You know, I don't even want to name a specific brand, but when people come in here, they're like, "I love the, these are my brand. This is what I smoke, and it's and I've smoked it." And I'm just like, "I don't. I feel like I feel bad that you're missing out on the the glories of other cigars, but at the same time, I'm also like, you like what you like. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, some people love the house cigar that's here at the, the shop. And that's all they buy. They don't want to try anything else. There's nothing you can tell them to venture out. It's just what they like. It's the taste. And so I'm like, all right. Well, and yeah, we I'm, call those people cheapskates. Well, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but yeah. Case in point to that, though, is that throughout the entirety of, of the cigar boom of the 90s, the most widely sold and most popular cigar in the entire country was the Macanudo. Right. And at the time, they just had the one, one blend. Yeah. That is as boring a cigar as I've ever smoked. Yeah. But, you know, I, a combination of just personal preference and price, you you, in, you end up with those things. And, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm very much a you like what you like. But I mean, George Burns smoked machine-rolled cigars. Right. My grandfather was a huge cigar smoker. I remember just walking to his house. That's where I really fell in love with cigars. I just have vivid memories of walking into his house and smelling that smell and just like grandpa's house. And then I found out years later after he had passed, it was Swisher Sweets. Yeah. And I'm just like, I thought grandpa smoked the best of the best. You know, it smelled so rich and, and great inside of his house. But I, I mean, I was young. I didn't know any better. But he liked those and they were, you know, he my, liked so what he liked. My grandfather smoked a pipe for a time. Yeah. He would, throughout throughout his life... That where that overlapped with mine. He went cigarettes and then pipe and then he went back to cigarettes. He, and I remember the I could if I every once in a while I will smell that pipe tobacco and yeah. I, I it it instantly takes, takes me back. back. I know it. And it was it was something they sell at like Walmart. Right. Like it wasn't anything special. Yeah. But but to me that yeah it was that that was poppy. Yeah, it's what you like. Now I do have to ask it so. Of all the volunteer work I've been doing at the mission here, yeah, I've I do have to ask some questions about business for for you because I'm curious. Okay. So, there's always an owner here, sure, which is one of the greatest things about it. Yes. But when you're working here, and the owner starts pouring bourbon, does it ever feel a little awkward? That I mean, I know you don't drink enough on job to right. do it. Does it ever feel awkward? Does somebody ever come up and offer you, hey, I'd like to pour this for you, and you're like, uh, I'm working. Well, he's working, and he's drinking like a fish. Um, <laughs> how do you, yeah, how there, do you handle that? You know, it hasn't been really stated that there's any, like, hard, fast rules. I think they, the owners expect everyone to be responsible. Um, and there's there's been plenty of customers just to be nice and be gracious. They're like, hey, try this bourbon we just got, you know, just like we were just talking about. If I got this bourbon that's special to me, and... Uh, it's popular and no one else gets a drink but you. You know, they make you feel special with that. Um, it doesn't really bother me. I think the only time that it would become a problem is if, you know, people were starting to fall down on the job or get sloppy or whatever. Well, but yeah, it's probably, it's never had to be brought up to you. Yeah. And I'll, there may have been a conversation with another employee that, oh. I, that I heard rumor of, but I, that's Has strictly there? rumor. Yeah. Strictly you have to be careful because there's still a, there's still a job and there's this this shop has customer service expectations and um, you have to be professional and it could get you can get carried away pretty easily you well, know especially I'm, when you have beer distributors coming in saying hey try this beer mm-hmm. like tell me what you think blah 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 it's the same with cigars it's like before you know it you smoke ten cigars and you're like holy cow I smoked ten cigars because I was getting free samples that they wanted me to try so you have to. You have to be self-disciplined to some some point. Well, and your day job is your lieutenant in the fire department. That's correct. And also, so now would you like to take a stop and say a few words about 
not setting your house on fire with a turkey fryer. Sure. Ladies and gentlemen, please use caution <laughs> when frying turkeys, um, cooking turkeys in your house. First of all, when you're frying turkeys, don't fill up the pot to the brim with oil, peanut oil. Lots of people make that mistake. Do it outside. Do it away from a structure. All those type of things. But, you know, I don't work... Don't use a frozen turkey. Don't use a frozen turkey. I work in one of the most affluent and uh, most educated, you know, communities that you can work in. Brentwood, Tennessee. Doctors, lawyers, sports players, celebrities. And you'd be surprised of what we, <laughs> what we run into sometimes because... Little things like that, people just don't think about it. So they'll dump a frozen turkey right into a full pot of peanut oil right underneath their garage, and it, <laughs> and they wonder what happened, you know, at the end of the day. So are, are you familiar with Alton Brown, the celebrity chef? He had a couple of shows on Food Network back yes, in the day. Yes, yes. He does an episode of his show Good Eats where he talks about frying turkey because it was it was based in Marietta, Georgia. So okay. it's, you know, it's it's a southern thing to fry yeah. your turkey and. He does this whole, and it's it's over the top on purpose, but it just kind of proves the point. And he lays about a six foot diameter uh, sand pit in his yard. Yep. And he sets up his eight foot a frame ladder over the turkey fryer with a pulley, yep. so that he can stand well back and slowly lower. It's the just it was it's the Rube Goldberg of turkey frying apparatuses. Yeah, but it just goes to show you how dangerous it really is. Oh yeah, if, especially if you're the only the kind of person that only fries stuff once a year. Absolutely, yeah. It's and it's quick. People don't think about it. It's the same thing as if you're if you're at home boiling some. Um, you know, my family's Italian, so we make spaghetti sauce. So one, my first year I was married, I wanted to impress my wife and make our homemade Italian spaghetti sauce. And so I poured olive oil in the pan and put the garlic in, just like my mom, my Italian mom taught me. And not even thinking, it started, the garlic started popping out of the pan. I turned up the heat too much. I started burning the, the garlic, which is a no-no. So I just, this was way before I was a firefighter. Um, I turned on the faucet and put the pan right under the faucet like it was cool it down <laughs> and dude I, I mean, you just don't realize it until that stuff happens to you and that's the type of calls we run all the time where people are just like i i didn't realize it would do that 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 was going to be the other thing i was going to point out is if you do set your house on fire with the turkey fryer don't use water to put it out no okay and by the way sorry another shop thing I got to meet your wonderful mother last week. Yes. Those meatballs she sent was for the shop, weren't they? Because Mark ate every one of them and didn't offer me a single meatball. Made me watch him eat them. So I'm just curious, were those for the shop or were those just for Mark? Well, you know what's You funny? can throw him under the bus because he didn't share a single meatball yeah. with the rest of us. They were... I'm actually... I was supposed to bring... Don't tell anybody. I was supposed to bring a whole bag for Monty. But we just, we ate them all. So I have to make some more. I have to make some more. I got the recipe now. And that's one thing. I, my, I flew my mom down to Tennessee. And I said, I, teach me this stuff, you know. Um, and so she did. We spent a whole day. And she just taught me all the recipes. And How's your mom's cannoli? That seems like a personal question. <laughs> Pretty good for a woman of her age. my dad. What? <laughs> but, I mean, does she make a good cannoli? Because I, I love a cannoli. My mom was never a... She was never a baker. She was always sauce. It was always the sauce that was the most important. Meatballs. And that's it. Hey, do y'all call it gravy? Or is that just a Sopranos no, we, thing? We just call it. We call it sauce. Okay. I, I, like, I, I like gravy. I'll I go thought back that was forth. a Sopranos thing. It is. The gravy. Yeah. The, the Sunday yeah, gravy. Good fellas. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Anyway, we probably were talking about something cigar-related now that I've... <laughs> now, now that I've found out that I was denied an Italian I'll, I'll meatball... I'll you because you hooked me on with uh, deer jerky That's last true. year. I'll, I'll never forget that. We'll trade out deer jerky for meatballs. I'll fix you, you up. You got it. So, from the New York Times... We're big time now, Trey. Oh, I, I thought we were doing the other article From first. the New York Times... Cigars Booze Money, How a Lobbying Blitz Made Sports Betting Ubiquitous. Great word, ubiquitous. I like ubiquitous. Uh, ubiquitous is a great word. But basically this article 
I love that they hit all the stereotypes. Representative John Barker, a cattle breeder, retired judge, and chairman of one of the most powerful committees of the Kansas legislature. This guy's right out of central casting right. for this next portion. <laughs> does, he, a, does he look like Wilford Brimley, too? Yeah, I don't have a picture of him. <laughs> Had Diabetes. a glass of 30-year red breast Irish whiskey in his hand and a Don Tomas cigar from Honduras in his mouth. I used to love Don Tomas. That was my cigar of choice when I first started smoking. Really? So, so this article is just straight out of central casting. There's no way yes. this... That this could be any more on the note. <laughs> if I was the guy writing this article, I would read it and say, "Hey, this is this is a little over the top." <laughs> and so the article's behind a paywall, so I can't I can't pick it up. So I'm going to rely on you to. Oh, well, I didn't carry. pay for it. No, it's it's because it's it's because I look at articles from the New York Times occasionally, oh. and there's a max number per yes. whatever. Yeah, that, yeah, I'll never hit that number. Yeah. You'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me, I'm way under that number. Yeah. So, anyway, this is all about, and I'm going to sum- summarize it. I'm not going to go into the dates and all that. This is all about mating, making sports betting legal effectively. Right. And the lobbying and everything that went on, just like the lobbying goes on for anything else. But sports betting seems to be, it's such a, a, you feel it so quick. I'm not sure I understand what you mean. So look at NFL ratings last year. Gotcha. How much did they jump? And it was solely attributed to sports betting. Right. Yeah. And you hear the horror stories, you hear the good stories, you hear the bad. But we've never talked actually about sports betting on the show. What is your opinion of sports betting? I'm fine with sports betting. I... You know, there's a gray area where you start getting amateur sports involved. You know, college, for example. Uh, Pee-wee football. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little far-fetched. <laughs> hey, I got a, I got a three-game parley That's on Brentwood right. soccer this we weekend. Were, we were just joking in here, like when the Little League World Series. Oh, yeah. So we got a guy that comes in all the time, and he was he bets on sports. And we were like, how much you got on the Nolensville-Tennessee <laughs> game? That's you know, funny. But anyway, the, sorry. I, the... Well, so I, my favorite thing about sports betting are the prop bets. And that's, especially around the Super Bowl every year, you know, the over-under on the length of the national anthem and all of, the, all of these things. Those are my favorite parts of sports betting. And because now there's a wider audience, there are more people willing to bet on weird stuff. And, you know... It, a bookie will figure out some odds for you. If you tell them you want to give them a grand on whether or not someone rips a jersey in the third period, they'll find a way right. to, to give you a line on it. And, and so I like that aspect of it. I also, you know, gambling is one of those things that falls on the morality spectrum when we start talking about what's legal and what not. You know, cigars are headed that direction uh, tobacco in general, you know, alcohol falls with it. You know, they still call it a sin tax for the for the extra tax you pay on alcohol in the yeah. state. And you know, it's so there's it's. I'm always in favor of those things being legal because I feel like it's it's really weird when we start legislating morality. Uh, so I so I'm I'm all for this. I'm all for it being legal. I don't understand the attraction to it because if the game is not interesting enough that I can enjoy it without having, you know, this week's baby formula riding on it, I just don't know that that it's that that I should be wasting my time watching it. But I'm not a sports guy. See, that's the thing. I'm not I'm not interested in any sporting event enough to lay coinage down on it. I mean, the, the no. sport, my sport of choice is Formula One. Yeah. And, but, but I just couldn't, I, I don't think I could bring myself to, yeah, to lay a mortgage payment down on it and, and, and gamble with it. I think there's definitely, you know, upsides and downsides. I think the, um, oh, there was something you said and I, I lost my train of thought. Um, He's going blank, Tom. This happens. Yeah. This happens as you get older and start having kids. Well, I will say too on the sports betting thing. For me personally, I don't, I, I don't have the money to 
just throw away on, oh my gosh, after third down, there's going to be this play that's going to make me money. And I know guys at work that bet a quarter on if they're going to get a fourth down or not, and then they win 50 cents. And they're like, it becomes this snowball thing where they're addicted to it. But, you know, when I was in Vegas a few weeks ago for the first time ever, which I don't really care to go ever go back. It wasn't kind of my t- type of town. I couldn't believe that the whole area dedicated to people sitting in front of TVs, watching any sport you wanted to, and you can bet. It's like the new slot machine yeah. that I saw out in Vegas. Just the mindless, repetitive and gambling. It, yeah, and it's just like you can bet on whatever you want to. And I just, you know, for me, and you can bet from your phone, and it's just, it's, it's brought on a whole... Now, morality, I, you know... I'm with you on that. I, I think it should be legal and let people spend their money on what they want to, but I don't know. I, I just feel like to a certain point it's getting a little far-fetched as far as the, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, certain people aren't watching the sport for the sport anymore. They're watching it to see what they can benefit from. Right, and th- that's that's actually what I what I had forgotten earlier. So I was, I was going to talk about fantasy football was kind of the, the start to this. Yeah. And I, I've never been a huge NFL fan, but a handful of years ago, I got in, I had some friends that were putting together a fantasy league, and I was yeah. like, okay. And all of a sudden, I'm now interested. I'm interested in Tampa Bay versus Arizona. Right. And, you know, I have no reason to be. And so from a betting perspective, I guess if you're, if you're trying to find a reason to be interested, but... I don't. I don't know that I. There's anything out there that I want to be interested in enough. I think fantasy's done a great thing for football because it's gotten people that weren't interested in football, watching football, knowing the players, having community. Yeah. Like there's all these benefits to it, but at the same time, it's like, are you really watching the whole entire game, or are you just watching it for your benefit? And we're just. I think we live in a society now where people want to see. They want the instant gratification that I won. Yeah, I don't know anything about football, but I won fantasy that week, or you know, I I bet this much money on this, and I I won because they scored a touchdown in the fourth quarter. I don't know. It's well, how long before um, the betting gets brought into politics? And by that means, my opponent, you know, bet the Chargers last week and took the points, or and talk about degrade the other person's character because they're gambling. Oh, I wonder uh, how long before that happens. Yeah. It, it'll be it'll be soon. Uh, you know, I mean cuz although we really don't get into that much anymore in, in I mean obviously there's mudslinging all over the place but rarely does someone's drinking, smoking or whatever get brought into that. Now if they're running around on their wife or husband yeah. that gets brought into the fold but I don't know how much gambling would be. I, I think it would be treated like alcohol and, and cigars, where it's just it's kind of a nothing burger in terms of the things. Politics are dirty enough, or politicians are dirty enough that you don't need those things to find something to get your dander yeah. up about. Yeah. Well, funny you should mention that because the next article I got is from WPRI Channel Two dot com. They're on your side, <laughs> Warwick, Rhode Island. The evening before Election Day, Mary Hopkins went to Warwick home, State Representative Camille Vela Wilkinson, and left her a nice note in a cigar that said, thank you for running a clean campaign, for not mudslinging, for not, go, for not being running a dirty campaign. I truly believe that both of us have the best interest of this area in our hearts and may the best person win. Yeah, I love that. that that's su- that's such a great story that need that needed to be told. That's that's such a great story as far as that goes, and it's such a cigar person move. Yeah, absolutely. How how many? I mean, I, I don't I don't make a lot of enemies, mostly because I'm just I, I'm not worth most people's time. Like I don't make enough of an impression to make friends or enemies, but. <laughs> Yeah, there have been times in a cigar shop where there's a bit of a dust up or you don't see eye to eye or, or something like that. I was at a I remember I was thinking about this story the other day actually. I had I had left Atlanta about a year or two years prior 
and I was back for a work thing and there were a bunch of the old guard happened to all be back in town and so we arranged to go back to the old shop and hang out we organized a poker game because that used to be what what we did and of course some of the the current regulars were there and this other guy and I it wasn't anything I was just being a little bit of a dick because he kept trying to remind me of how and I, I and I I may have said something to the effect of like I I, I'm the old guard here. Like, you, you, you know. And Did you call him an unboiled potato tray? No, I didn't. But okay. I just, no, <laughs> he got I was through just. got Facebook for calling somebody an unboiled potato. No, I was, I was, I was polite in, in tone, but I was, the things I were saying were pretty close to don't know, don't you know who I am? It was kind of, a, it wasn't normally my character, but, and he didn't think anything of it. It wasn't really a big deal. But as soon as I got past the situation, I realized I was being a little bit of a dick. So I went in the humidor. I picked out a cigar and I went and I handed it to him. And I was like, I, I wasn't, I wasn't acting right. Here you go. And yeah, like, and and it smoothed the whole thing over. It's it's such a that it's such an easy move to mend a fence in a cigar shop that way. It is. I, I personally seeing it over and over working here at a cigar shop. You know, I see. I see dust-ups, and I see people, politics, and all that stuff. Um, you know, the cigar shop is where people can give each other grace. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about it, now we live in a culture nowadays where Facebook is the place where you call people out, you have conversations, you disagree. But a cigar shop, you can disagree in person and learn how to talk to another human being. Mm-hmm. And I commend you on saying, hey, I'm sorry, I... Uh, you know, I think it's important because, you know, all of us say stuff that we don't mean or say stuff that we just out of emotion. And I think saying, I'm sorry, and here's a cigar, I mean, that's the, that's important. Yeah, it's, it's handy. It's handy to be able to say to somebody, you know, I've wronged you and here is compensation. It's got to make your life really easy having a wife that smokes cigars because you don't have to worry about what flowers to buy or anything. You just buy, buy an Africa and you're, you're good. Well, kinda. Because <laughs> you always, you know, when she first got away from flavored cigars and started smoking cigars, I sat down all my buddies and I said, hey, the first one of you so-and-sos that buys her a Padron, I'm going to take outside. And I'll, because, so here's the thing. If I buy her an amazing cigar to make up for something I did wrong, then she's now had an amazing cigar. Oh, I've yeah. now changed the, palette. the paradigm. This, yeah, the yes. scope, the scope of what she smokes. But I can't really apologize of like a quorum. Right. <laughs> so it, it's a little more difficult. It's not as easy as you might think. Right. <laughs> there could be. It's, I've learned it's better to just buy a higher number of a cheaper cigar she likes than to yeah. buy her an expensive cigar. This is a you. You buy a box and you hand her five. Right. And then when when she's still mad, you reach back in and you go, okay, here's five more, and you just keep digging out of the box until she's happy. Right. <laughs> or you you put it on. The, the new trick she listens to my to this podcast so she's gonna she's gonna now know all my tricks is put a really nice cigar on my shelf in the humidor yep and then when I get in trouble pull it off of my shelf now I never intended to smoke it anyway but pull it off of my shelf and gently put it on her shelf there with a little then it's the gesture something. yeah yeah and it's it's I've now given this up so there, there there's a whole there's a whole method to this and all but these are these are advanced marriage techniques. I'll be married 24 okay. years this Wednesday. Oh, congrats. So that's these are all advanced marriage techniques. Don't y'all that have been married one or two years try these? Yeah. <laughs> My it. wife wouldn't smoke a cigar. We've been married 14. She wouldn't. It's pretty cool. Yeah, mine, you get to share that. <laughs> mine, mine's not really interested in, in cigars. She doesn't have any problem being around me while I smoke cigars, sure. but just doesn't want to smoke one. And, yeah. yeah. My wife's very gracious. She she puts up with it. I mean, I come home smelling like a cigar shop, you know, at the end of the day. So Yeah. But, okay, let's step away for the break real quick because we've already ran a little long because we got interested in chewing the fat. Okay. So we'll be back. Welcome back to the Cigar Cast. This is one of your hosts, Shane. 
sitting across from the man that got trouble in a cigar shop because he told a certain rep we know he couldn't get a date on a tombstone, Mr. Trey Dedman. <laughs> <laughs> You that, know which rep I'm talking about, don't that you? That doesn't sound like something I'd say. Uh, too witty. <laughs> wow. <laughs> too pointed. No, this is... No, because... So, we need to get into the motorcycle club story, so I'll make this short. But yesterday... So, we're buying a bed for my daughter for Christmas. That's that's what she wants. You know, she's been on hand-me-downs and, and stuff, and, and she just wants something. So, we found on Facebook Marketplace, this, like, upholstered, sort of almost denim, it matches her room, it's exactly her style, like, perfect platform bed. And so, I messaged the person, and I said, hey, like, is this still available? What part of town are you in? Because I'm, you know, trying to figure out how much of a pain in the ass it's going to be to go get this thing. And he's in Murfreesboro. And so, I said, would you... It was listed for 120, and I said, "Would you take 100 if I meet you today? Like, we'll get it gone." We, no response, blocks me. Like, just block. So, what the heck? Like, be an adult. Just say no. Price is firm because I didn't say that anywhere in the ad. Well, not to be outdone, I grab my wife's phone and I find the listing and I message and I say, "Hey, is this still available?" Yeah, it's absolutely still available. Come on. Wow. So we organized the whole thing, and I head off to Murfreesboro, and I go pick it up. The whole way there, thinking about the fact that I'm going to, after I pay him and get the bed in the car, Call him out. I'm going to say something yeah. about the fact that he was a petulant child when right. he could have just said, and I'd have still bought it for 120 Right. The guy answers the door, and he looks a bit like Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs, oh, like full skullet. <laughs> Like he at least put the meth pipe down before he answered the door, but and I in that moment went, you know, it's not important for me to to sew that right now, and I'll just let him have it. I'm gonna let it slide. <laughs> I'm gonna. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, you can have the bed, the the pits downstairs. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, our guest Tom Lashivo, he works here at the shop. He's a lieutenant with the fire department. But you and a couple of other guys started a motorcycle club. Yeah. So before we get into that, I want you to tell, why did you have to start a motorcycle club? Well, it was at a time where, you know, when you think of Harley riders or you think of motorcyclists, previously, I would say previous from 2005, you know, um, it wasn't cool to have a Harley. It was, I mean, you know, you could have a chopper, you know, but like the Harley Davidson community was kind of old guys with cut off shirts and they rode around, they got, you know, tan skin, they had their biker. It was dentists and lawyers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And on the weekend, they, they acted like, you know, bad boys. If you watch that movie, uh, Wild Hogs, Wild Hogs you'll, get, you'll get it. So that my was, dad was a Harley guy back then. I know yeah. exactly what so you're that's what, about. So that's what it was all about. So, you know, in the late 2000s, Harley was smart. And they started making bikes for younger younger guys. And so, long story short, I won't drag this out, but I met, I wanted a motorcycle when my wife and I lived in New York. And so I said, I always want a Harley. One day I'm going to have one. And so in 2013, we were here in Tennessee for four or five years. And um, we, we found a deal and I, I bought my first, you know, Sportster. I met these two guys at the Harley dealership that were like, hey, and they were young guys just like me. They're the only two other young guys. And they were like, hey, you should ride with us. I was like, cool. Yeah, I got a bike now. I'll ride with you. And little did I know they wanted to join, uh, you know, or not join. They wanted to create a motorcycle club. So one of the guys was really creative and very artsy, very smart. And he said, I'm going to make a patch. We're going to. We're going to put it on a vest, and we're going to ride around, and we're going to be in a motorcycle club. Sons of Anarchy was popular at the time. And so he did just that, and he was out riding around one day, and he got stopped by, a, by one, of the the, club. One, of, one of the clubs in Tennessee. And they said, hey, and they were gracious, and they were nice. They didn't beat After him up. After they beat him senseless. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> While he's laying on the ground, and they're putting the boots to him. Oh, no. I'm just they, he, they were gracious and nice and just said, hey, you're not supposed to be doing that, and there's a way to go about it. And so 
he kind of gave him ins- him instruction on how to do it. And so he came back and told us and said, hey, this is how we, we go about starting a motorcycle club in Tennessee. And so we did it. We contacted the guy. So in the in each state, there's a confederation of clubs. And it's basically the governing body of motorcycle clubs in each state. So it ensures that each club gets along well, that they play well with each other, they follow the rules. There's new updates on, you know, the new clubs that are joining and what clubs shouldn't be really in the state or in the area. And so we went through this year-long process of standing up in front of all these club members and saying what our intentions are. And for the next year, we just went to each clubhouse. We spent a lot of time, and I was newly married, so my wife is very, very gracious, and she put (laughs) up with this. But we spent a lot of time going to dinners, going to clubhouses, and introducing ourselves and saying, hey, we're not crazy we're not we're just guys that just want to be in a club and that was an experience um of a lifetime because you know i'm a, I'm a type of person that i'm just interested in things that you can't the things you see on tv mm-hmm. when i lived in new york i was interested in the mafia so i i kind of got close to that for a second and I, I you know i got out of it and you know and so that's a story for after this episode yeah. i want to hear that <laughs> um but i got I liked seeing things that, you know, people are kind of afraid of and kind of like thinking about it and looking at it and getting involved in it. So we were in this world where we were going to clubs and we were meeting guys that were like full on my whole entire life is riding this motorcycle. And if anybody gets in my way of my motorcycle or my brothers with the same patch, then there's hell to pay. I mean, it's, it's a lifestyle and it's the brotherhood. It's a family for these guys. Some of these guys, it's all they have, mm-hmm. you know? And so we, we went through it and we, we eventually after a year got fully patched in and, uh, we started having our own meetings once a month and we started doing our own dues and we started having meetings and there was a hierarchy and there was a probationary process where, um, you pretty much just like, like Sons of Anarchy where you have to pay your dues and you have to be kind of the, you know, the tag along for a little while and do things. Um, you so have a question? We talked about this before the show. Yeah. Cause this is what fascinates me is I never understood the why, you know, I'd heard mm-hmm. the story from our mutual friend yeah. and I never understood why would they care if you wanted to put a patch on your vest and ride around, why would they care? Why Who's got that kind of energy to put into this stuff? And that, yeah. that's the part that always confused me. And that's what I wanted to have you on the show to really talk about is, yeah. why do they care so much? Why are they so into, into that that they're willing to, you know, resort to physical violence? Sure. To, because somebody happens to be wearing a pair, piece of clothing they don't like? What, yeah. How does this work? It's kind of like anything that's, um, that's large and organized. And you got to think of the United States, and not even just in the United States, but globally. You know, when you're talking about giant motorcycle clubs, you're talking about the Hells Angels, you're talking about Outlaws, um, Banditos Mongols, Banditos, Banditos. Um, these guys have thousands of members... And there's a territory that they kind of, they want to think they're in charge of, which, and I mean, pretty, for, for, for the most part, they are. So when you go and you put on a patch on your back and you put specifically the MC cubes on the back of a, uh, a vest that says motorcycle club, you're basically saying that we don't really respect that. Um, and a lot of people do it just mistakenly not knowing. And so this is, this is kind of important for people that are just thinking about just riding a motorcycle and putting motorcycle club on the back of their vest. Now, if you go to the Harley dealership and you buy a new Harley, you can, you can become part of the hog chapter, which is their type of motorcycle club, and no one cares because it doesn't say motorcycle club on the back. Right. But if you put those two letters, MC, on the back of your club... You're basically representing something that's way bigger than you are, that's um, historically 
a part of a group of people that fought authority and there's a long history behind it i'll just say it's the little kid that shows up to the docks running around with a plastic sword calling himself a pirate yes yeah and you know the big dogs will find you at some point and say hey they'll either be really nice to you or they'll be i mean when i was living in new york i had a buddy that parked his vespa outside of the hell's angels clubhouse and went to work and he just thought this is motorcycle parking we can park in a row and no big deal he came back and his vespa was wrapped around a tree they don't it's like a sign of disrespect for them um now your question as to why shane is i don't know i think part of it's kind of like it's it's the family aspect it's the i've stood i've done my time i've paid my dues this is the only brotherhood i have i'll fight for this thing i'll it, you know it's it's the same i think for some people with religion it's the same thing with um what sports fanaticism yeah sports yeah people that get in fights over a sports team yeah in the stands philadelphia yeah <laughs> raiders um no those type of people that are so uh, they're sought after what they love and what they believe in and and you can't you can't sway them otherwise i guess i I've, I've heard before that those groups tend to give two groups a pass and those are the Jesus Riders and the Veterans. Was that, true. Is that true? That's true. There's a lot of um, Christian clubs in Tennessee, and there's a lot of veterans clubs in Tennessee. Um, yeah, so they don't get messed with, but the, but they still go through the same process if they want to put oh, really? MC on their back. Okay. There's, there's um, you know, Marine clubs that have had to go through that process, just like anybody else. And so... Um, it's those larger clubs that are the one percenters that are the big giant clubs that kind of govern which area. The real problem is, is when you get a one percenter club with another club that's a one percenter club that's big, and they start melding into each other's territory. That's there, when you'll see, and you can read articles on that online. There was a there was a big dust up in Waco, Texas, a number of years ago over just such a. Such an occurrence. There was one in Knoxville, Tennessee, within the last six or seven months. Okay. That was the same, because there's another club that's kind of coming into Tennessee territory, and I've heard that there's a lot of out west, I mean, there's obviously a lot of west coast people moving to Tennessee. With that brings the Hells Angels, I mean, they started out west. Right. You know, so it's just this interesting battle so with so you know your your buddy has the experience out on the road and then finds out you know what you guys are up against to getting this club formed yeah what was it about forming a club that was worth going through the trouble well i will say if you've never experienced riding six to 14 people deep side by side 90 miles an hour on a harley wearing the same vest down the interstate it feels like it's it's a surreal um moment it feels extremely cool and some people won't understand that but if you watch sons of anarchy or whatever it feels just that cool and you and you really feel like no one can tell us what to do. We're going to go fast, um, work together as a group. We have each other's back. If anybody messes with us, there's going to be hell to pay. And so when you're with a group of people that big and that scary looking, I mean, because if you ever drive down the interstate and you see a motorcycle crew of 10 guys and they're all screaming down the interstate and they're side by side, you're like, okay. Yeah, it's, a, it's wanna, an intimidating motorcade. I don't want to mess with those guys. Yeah. It's just like when I was in New York, though. It's, you know, when you had the you had the sports bike clubs. Mm-hmm. And they would drive they would drive four-wheelers and quads and, uh, you know, sport bikes down the interstate. And they would weave in and out of traffic. And they were doing wheelies. And you're like, 
I don't want to be sought by those guys. Mm-mm. You know. In fact, um, there are tons of videos on YouTube as to why you don't want to be stopped exactly. by those guys. But I will say that a lot of the clubs do a lot of good. You hear mostly about the bad. Obviously, the 10 to 20% of guys, which I really, I've met, but I never really had dealings with, um, you know, yeah, they'll do some drugs and they'll do all that stuff that you see because they think it's cool. But, you know, you look at the toy drives, you look at the if you're involved in politics, whatever party you're on, they do marches, they do parades, they do veteran stuff. So the community really, really tries to support itself. And any time that I was at a state Tennessee motorcycle club meeting, it was really cordial and everyone got along great. And there were so many different vests there and clubs there that, um, but my eyes were just like, I can't believe I'm sitting here. This is really, really, really cool. Yeah. So. Well, it's it's such a it's such a wild concept for me, you know. Yeah. I I live life by Groucho Marx. I never wanted to be part of a club that had me as a member. <laughs> and so to think that if I decided to go buy a Harley and jump on it and start riding, which I'd probably buy an Indian. I like the Indians yeah. better than the Harleys. But <laughs> it suits well, you. It suits you better. I read uh, Sonny Barger's book with the Hell's Angels, he he very seldom rode a Harley. He actually rode a Honda at the end of his... But that's... That's huh. a different story. It, it's amazing. But now, is this... Do they have a website? Is it written down? Or sure. is it all word of mouth? Is it all... Yeah, you can go to the state COC. It's Confederation of Clubs. There's a website. It'll show you every club that's involved in Tennessee. Um, it'll show you some ground rules on if you approach a club member. So one of the things we learned when we were a new club is you don't just go up and say, hey, how you doing? You know, I'm so-and-so. There's a there's a rule of you wait for them to shake your... for them to shake your hand. It's not a... So these are things that, like, a few of us right from the beginning, we had to go over. And, like, we're going we're gonna to go to these clubhouses... And there were some clubhouses that didn't want us to be there at all. It was it was somewhat scary. It was like, hey, we're just here. And they're like, we'll be with you in a second. And they'd shut the door, and we'd wait in the front yard for, you know, about an hour. And then they'd finally be like, okay, you can come in, state what, you, what you're doing here. Um, so it's very protective. But once you spend that time with that year and you prove yourself and say, hey, I'm not going to cause problems I want to fit into this family. I want to abide by the rules. Um, they're usually cool with you, but you have to pay your dues. It's honestly like I would compare it to being a firefighter, your probationary year. You get hired in. Nobody knows you. Nobody cares about you. Do your job. Shut your mouth. Do good work. Prove to, prove to us that you fit in with this family. And then afterwards, you're part of the family. But it takes, it takes that time period. You got, it, it's one of those things when you're it, uh, I like the comparison between firefighting because these, yeah. these are two arenas where whoever's side by side with you you have to trust them with exactly. your life in some cases exactly yeah and and that doesn't happen overnight no it doesn't it takes a lot of time and and it's it's a foreign concept to us now because we expect things to happen like I was saying earlier we expect things to happen quickly overnight but relationships and brotherhood and true friends and all that stuff it takes a lot of time and you you do have to trust you know firefighting going into a burning house knowing that this person next to you is going to be able to pull you out and it's the same with hey if i get into trouble downtown nashville with my motorcycle club these this group is going to have my back now there's some people that incite stuff that i just i didn't want to be a part of you know, when you get those loose cannons kind of in the club or that want to, that love the idea of being in a club and love what it means on TV and think it's super cool and they cause problems, I wasn't really willing to, I was like, I'm not, I'm not that sold into it that I would spend the rest of my life in prison or whatever. Yeah. It, it's Worst gotta, case scenario. It's got to be tough too. You know, when it's when it's your baby, so yeah. to speak, and yeah. 
you know, I'm assuming the vetting process to get in a club is even harder than trying to get a club in the Confederation. Yeah. And, you know, they they basically prove themselves for a year or for however long. And then once they become a full-fledged member, something changes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it does. And it's the same with probationary firefighters. Once they're released from probation after that first year, it's like, oh, I'm free. I can just kind of coast now. I don't really have to work as hard. Yeah. And after, you know, with the club stuff, it's like, oh, this person was squared away and they did what we asked and all this other stuff. Now they're the the loose cannon after they get released. They get that full patch on their back. It's It changes people sometimes. So, Did you ever have to deal with crossing territories? Did you guys ever do a ride yeah. where you had to... What was that experience like? Yeah, so what the common courtesy is to reach out to... If you're crossing state lines, you want to reach out to their confederation of clubs and say, hey, we're going we're gonna to ride to Florida and we're going to cross these states and is it cool if we ride through there? Um, a lot of times guys would ride to certain states and they wouldn't just wear patches at all. I was going to ask if you would ever yeah. just take the patches off. Sure. I mean, there's, you know, there's certain things where you have to, you know, like I come rolling up to the fire department. I'm not going to wear my, my MC full blown patch to the fire department just because, you know, I have city management commissioners and stuff. I don't want them to feel like there's still a stigma. And, and I'll, yeah, there's, there is a stigma and I don't want people to think that are uneducated about the whole process of like, oh my gosh, we we have a psycho, um, you know, Sons of Anarchy club member working for us. Yeah. Um, and I don't think people should be afraid of motorcycle clubs at all, um, especially outsiders, people that are fascinated by their bikes. And I mean, they're human beings just like the rest of us are. Show them respect. They'll show you respect. And, um, you know, I've only met just a handful of people that, and you won't see them if you're a, a normalized human being that just runs in <laughs> regular circles. They usually hide in the shadows and hang out with their own crew. So, but if you ever run into them, you know, be respectful and don't try to instigate. Is there a of, is there a greeting or is there a secret handshake or is there something? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There might there might be some in other clubs. We never really had one, but there's definitely a. Um, it's a respect thing. And, you know, guys that are in the one percenter, one percenter clubs that are in the big clubs, they know who, they're ride, who they ride with. Uh, outlaws, Mongols, Hells Angels, um, those big clubs, when they roll up to a bar, when they're wearing their vest, they know what it means. It's a, it's a big name. Um, you don't need to be like, hey... Uh, you're in the oh you're in the you're a Mongol that's cool tell me about the Mongols I wouldn't expect anything from that but you know hey your motorcycle's cool that's really nice they'll say thank you and they'll be respectful and um, it's really not a lot of people get intimidated by that world but it's really not scary unless they want it to be scary for you <laughs> well when you're like me when you're a human golden retriever that tries you know always looking to, to make a friend oh hey how are you doing how are you going you know when you're when you're that guy and then you hear about this stuff it's like oh okay well i don't how will i know when i've done wrong i mean well I'm you're like, also a person that's good at social interaction so you'll know you'll get the vibe when someone's like have you oh, met yeah. him <laughs> <laughs> but like what you could tell most people, well, most people, I've seen it time and time again where people don't know, but it's like respect what they're about, and if they don't want to talk to you anymore, let cool. them go. Let them go. But some people will keep pressing and pressing and pressing, and that's when you see the the old Facebook video of someone getting punched out from a Hell's Angel, and it's like, well, I wonder what happened 15 to 20 minutes before that you know, that little clip that you showed on Facebook of a hell's angel punching out somebody. Someone was probably enticing them. So. Well, speaking of kind of respect and showing respect, I've got one more article I want to hit. Yeah. Cause, uh, and then Thanks we'll for, wrap it let up. Me share. Man, that is, I could, I could sit here and talk to you about it all night. <laughs> I really could. Um, Schwarzenegger, uh, on the set of predator. We, we had this article, 
uh, I, I saw it about a week ago and didn't get to it last week, but I think this is so cool. And it, I was trying to do it from memory. Do you want to? Well, so the the summary of the article is, um, you know, Schwarzenegger's a well-known cigar guy. And on the, on the set of Predator, he was smoking a cigar. And Carl Weathers... That's, I, I couldn't remember Carl Weathers. Apollo yeah. Creed from yeah. Rocky. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Action Jackson. If, you, if you're a fan yeah. of bad oh, yeah. 80s movies, Action Jackson. Or what was his name in uh, Happy Gilmore? Um, oh, I don't know. He got his hand chopped off I by don't Hilliger. remember. I remember oh, the character, shoot. but not the name. Chubbs. Chubbs Peterson. All there right. you go. Sorry. But, uh, yeah, he was in The Mandalorian. Yep. Um, great actor. Yep. And he just, he was totally anti-cigar. And Schwarzenegger sat down with him and he said, hey, this helps me relax. This is very comforting. This is a time that I get for myself. And I'll be happy to smoke my cigars over here. I won't be standing next to you smoking a cigar. I'll be happy to smoke my cigars over here. And it actually began a cigar hobby for Carl Weathers. Wow. Now he smokes them regular, but Schwarzenegger handled it so well, just like we're talking about the motorcycle club, just very respectfully. Hey, I respect that you've got this opinion, but this is, here's what this means to me. Here's what this cigar symbolizes to me. And and Carl was like, you know, after he talks to me about it, I'm like, well, that sounds like a lot of fun. That sounds like something I need in my life. Right. And... It kind of ties in because we all have that person at Thanksgiving that after the turkey's <laughs> been ate and you kind of, you and a couple of buddies slide off to the side and light a cigar that starts doing the fake cough. Yeah. By the way, y'all, the fake cough, terrible move. <laughs> yeah. That makes you want to blow more smoke in their face. It, it does. Well, and that's, I, I think that is, is how that scenario got started off on the right foot was the yep. fact that Carl didn't just make a big to-do about it, he actually approached Arnold and said, I, I don't like this. Yeah. You know, and it was, it, it created a two-way street of communication. Yeah. It's really interesting. It's a great way to kind of handle that respectfully. And I think that's, that's really what it's all about when you're, especially as you're dealing with your family and you're dealing with such a diverse and somebody that may have never liked you anyway, and now they've found something they can kind of get a foothold on. Right. Yeah. So just be respectful with your cigar. Just take it easy. Enjoy it. And if somebody asks you why you smoke cigars, have an answer. Yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing less satisfying than when you ask somebody a question and they've never thought about it. It's just something they do. Yeah. That just drives me nuts. Yeah. It, well, why did you do that? You know, it's, it's the motorcycle club thing. Mm-hmm. It, it's such a foreign concept to me. I had to know from Tom. Sure. Why you do that? Why do you? Why would you go through? Because y'all went to some places that were a little on the shady side, no. and all were being no. generous. <laughs> that may have been a little on the shady side. I've heard this story from our from our mutual friend about yeah. it. He, he's a great leather worker. I've still oh, got. He made fantastic. me a knife case for and one I'm, of my knives, I and miss, it's just amazing. I miss hanging out with him. I haven't seen him for a while. And he's a he's a very gregarious, unassuming person. Yeah. And I cannot imagine what it was like when it was going through his mind when this guy pulls him over and said, "Hey, um, you can't be wearing that." Yeah, and wh- and he looks the guy, the leather, the leather worker. He actually looks scary. Oh yeah. So for somebody else to approach him and say, "Hey, you can't be wearing that," that's he's, a bold move. He's not used to that, I'm sure. He's not because he he kind of looks scary himself. But well, let's talk about our cigars as we're kind of landing this plane, and I'll. D- the Dorado to me is just excellent. Yeah, I, I'm actually going to go back a week because I've had another of the Lagoleros, and I'm going to give that a full six. I, I told you I, it was just a hair away. I'm, I'm, I'm having had another one on a fresh palate. I'll say that's a six. I think the Dorado is also a six. Yeah, we were, all of our cigar rating is done on a scale of one to seven. Number seven being I'd break my arm to try to grab another one. Gotcha. And number one being I'd only smoke it if it was offered to me by a grouchy third world dictator. (laughs) And so we always rate our cigars kind of on a one to seven. And the Dorado, for those of you that are really into the cigars and understand, and you say, oh, it's an AJ, it's going to be too strong, it's going to have a lot of kick. 
This is a real departure from AJ. This is stretching his skills out there. And that's part of what I like about it so much. Now, I smoke more AJ than I do anything else. I'm yeah. a huge fan of the way he blends and, and the way those cigars all have a common thread. This, yes, it's a departure. It doesn't kick you in the teeth with the pepper and spice. It's medium, and it's just so well-balanced and well-constructed the whole way. I think it was, they knocked it out of the park. Yeah, I yeah. think it's a six. It's a six for me all mm. every day. Yeah, this is this is a cigar that's same for me. I mean, I would I would say based off your guys' scale, it's a six. It's consistent the whole entire way, and I've relit it a couple times, and it's it's still great. I mean, and at twelve bucks a stick, twelve and change, it's fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. yeah, it, just a an outstanding stick, and a, and we get them in and out here at the shop. Yep. We, t- we covered this in great detail last week, kind of how you rotate these cigars in and out oh, right. and things like that. But when your shop gets them, try you one. I think you'll really enjoy the Dorado. For sure. Tends to be one of my go-tos. Well, Tom, thank you for taking the time to sit down with us tonight and give us your precious We've really time. enjoyed it. Hey, thank you so much. It's been an honor. Pleasure. Thank you. How do they get a hold of us, Trey? That's what I was waiting for. You can reach us at facebook.com slash the cigarcast. We're on Instagram and Twitter at the cigarcast for as long as Twitter's still around. And you can reach us at email info at the cigarcast.com. Well, thanks everybody for listening this evening. And until next week, have a great cigar and think well of us.